the Crude Audacity Podcast. podcast that talks shop shit and of course all things strategy with oil patch influencers i am Catherine mills and before we begin today wherever you are listening from go ahead and leave us a rate and review and if you happen to be watching on youtube go ahead and click that little subscribe button down at the bottom there for me that way you can stay up to date on all things oil energy and of course the crude audacity so let's jump right into it Today, team, we will be discussing best practices for scaling your business amongst a volatile market. And as you know, the energy industry is a niche industry. The oil and gas industry is an extremely niche industry. So today, I am joined by Alan Bernard and Ezra North of Gyro Data because they have direct experience in scaling your business up so that you can niche up or niche down. Alan and Ezra, welcome to the Crude Audacity podcast. Hello. Thank you, Catherine. <laughs> hey, yeah, thank you, Catherine. Thank you all so much for joining. I am so excited about this conversation and this episode. I've really been looking forward to it because I am fascinated by how teams are navigating these changing waves. And it seems like in the oil field these days, the only constant is change. So before we jump into it, Y'all both have very interesting resumes and backgrounds in the oil field, and I'd like to learn a little bit more about how you got started in oil and energy and how you've ascended into the roles that you have today. Whoever wants to go first. <laughs> AIDS before beauty, Alan. Oh, come on, Ezra. <laughs> uh, you, know the, you know the backup to that is pearl before swine. Uh, <laughs> I'll go first. I, I, uh, I, you know, my history with gyro data and even the oil field is probably not unlike many others. Uh, I didn't have family in the oil and gas business. Um, so I actually fell into it really just in the need to have a job. I did graduate as a chemical engineer and pursued uh, work in the chemical business, but it was in the early 90s. Um, and there wasn't really the petroleum industry wasn't thriving at that time. We were coming out of the eighties. And so it wasn't, it wasn't a career option, nor did I, was I aware of it. So it was really when the, uh, I was working as a chemical engineer and the company went out of business, it was a small startup. Uh, I, we were looking for work and it was either go to a refinery and work as a refine in the refinery all day, which wasn't really attractive. Um, or, um, <laughs> From New Orleans, I was in New Orleans, and a friend of my dad said, "Well, guy I go fishing with, he works for this company. It's great. You just carry this little pager around. You get some equipment. They teach you how to run it, and you just go offshore or to a drilling rig whenever the pager goes off. And you don't even have to go to an office. It's easy, and you make like a lot of money." So uh, I bought into that, and uh, it. There's a long, crazy story after that. That was uh, 20 years ago, 20 years and six months ago. And it really just started for me working in the field. It didn't use uh, really any of my chemical engineering training, but it did immediately immerse me in 
the reality of oil and gas and especially drilling. So, you know, the first thing you recognize that it's a 24 hour operation and that everything's about time. And that's probably the greatest lesson you learn. I still to this day keep the phone by my bed at night. I don't need to. I shouldn't. I can't do any bit of good to any operation right now, as Alan will tell you. But, um, man, it, it just it opens your eyes to uh, a whole world, a niche, as you call it. Uh, well, we were a niche inside a niche inside a niche at Gyrodata. So I really had to learn the specialized skill. Uh, but that skill that we have puts us in every operation pretty much around the world. The, the technology we have is very unique. And even in the scope of where I started in the Gulf of Mexico, I could have, I was on a drill ship one night, two days later, I'm on a land rig in East Texas, then I'm on a drill barge, jack up. I mean, all in the scope of two weeks, you could see the entire oil field in the Gulf of Mexico. And most people would work in a rotation. Uh, they would literally see the same rig often for their whole career or for long periods of their career. <laughs> and um, yeah, so really, I, I just fell into it and uh, just stubbornly stuck it out, uh, even though it was really is brutal, to be honest, that, that little pager that it just goes off and you go, it, it went off constantly all the time. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we, you know, we were in, in 2000, it was very much you go until you can't move and then you go some more. There weren't so much stringent regulations around driving and time off and rotations and stuff like that. I was just go, go, go. And uh, yeah, so that's how I got started. That's awesome. Alan, what about you? Well, you can tell who's the salesman on this call and it's not me. So <laughs> Ezra's sort of very flurry with these language, which is great. Uh, like, you, know, you know, I love you, Ezra. No, I, 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 I was actually really, really fortunate uh, in the 1980s uh, when I was studying. Uh, I think it was 1986, 1987, I was studying in electrical and electronic engineering. I uh, had a friend um, that worked for Gyrodata. And he was working part-time in the calibration facility in Aberdeen in Scotland. And uh, he gave me a lead. Uh, he was he was finishing his degree and he was moving on. And he said, Alan, there's a, a really cool company called Gyrodata. And they, they pay you really well to work what they call graveyard shifts. He, he was really well. <laughs> yeah, so it was like graveyard shifts at like midnight, overnight, the weekend. And they pay you double time and all that stuff. So... Uh, um, I went, interviewed, I started part-time in the calibration facility in Aberdeen. And then uh, when I finished studying, they offered me a full-time job. And then after that, I, uh, I was fortunate enough to get my uh, foot on the rung of the ladder uh, career-wise. And then really from there on, it was, uh, it was my destiny after that. So I worked really hard, as everybody does. And uh, I had a very, very uh, clear vision that I wanted to travel the world, which I've done successfully. Um, it was always something I, I looked up at our um, marketing manager at the time and our vice president. I said, oh, wow, one day I want to travel the world like those guys. Um, <laughs> at a certain point a few years ago, I regretted it because traveling the world is sometimes not as... Uh, not as that glamorous glam all the time. It's not that glamorous all the time, but it's. Uh, I'm really, really thankful I've managed to travel the world all throughout the uh, Europe. I've lived in the Middle East, I've lived in the Far East, and I'm living in the US, even though I'm just now I'm in the holiday in the UK. Uh, so for me, um, it's 32 years of journey with Gyrodata, pretty much the same story as Ezra. It's just a, tr a remarkable um, start in the industry. And then after that, it's really it's up to you and all the individuals in the world. You, you work hard, um, you keep on learning, um, you never become complacent. 
uh, you always say yes uh, to opportunities. You never turn opportunities down. And uh, that's where I am now. So I'm now in Houston as part of the executive team for Gyro Data. So there you have it. Always say yes, people. And then you get to be a VP. <laughs> well, I would say that that sounds like you're just a yes man. But no, you say yes to opportunities. You say yes to opportunities. So I think, you have to ask, what do you mean by Far East? Are you talking Russia? Are you talking China? No, well, uh, I lived in uh, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, Qatar, uh, Kuala Lumpur. So uh, some companies in oil field do three-year rotations or four-year rotations to go from country to country, position to position. Um, I've been more fortunate where it was a decade rotation where they would they would keep me. They kept me in the Middle East for over ten years, uh, which was great. I met my wife there. I had my family there, and then we moved on to the Far East. Spent ten years there, uh, which was great. Um, and then two, three years ago, we moved to the U.S. So it's slightly different than most companies. We uh, we don't normally rotate quite as quickly as other companies. I like that. Well, Ezra, you're from Louisiana, you were just saying. You're a New Orleans yep. Cajun man. Yep. So, uh, and uh, like Alan, it wasn't long after starting and working uh, out of Louisiana that I got that call to go international as well. And uh, I think, yeah, you it certainly seems glamorous and it is uh, mostly the most rewarding thing is that, and Alan would agree, we get to see our colleagues who are very much have the same starts that Alan and I start. They started either in the field or in, in the shop in engineering, they work their way up. And uh, that's just part of the core of this company. It's, yeah. it's phenomenal. And to be able to travel and meet them in person and see their operation, whether you're in you know, Middle East, South America, wherever, it's such a privilege and honor and it really does make it, it does make it magical. And yeah, so within a, it was about a year and I was ready to quit. Alan, you don't know this, but yeah, I, the pager went in the drawer. It was actually Mardi Gras. Coincidentally, I came, the chopper flew me in from the rig and I was done. I pretty much was done. I just didn't tell anybody, luckily. Went out and had a, had a little fun for Mardi Gras, came back, and obviously now it was broke again and needed a job. So I get the pager out, and it's on fire with vibrations and stuff. And yeah. I go, where were you? We need to go to Trinidad. You got to go run some jobs in Trinidad. Well, so Mardi Gras is the perfect place to make life-altering decisions. Let me tell you <laughs> there, being a Mississippi yeah. myself. But, Esther, you, may, you may want to explain to Catherine what a pager is. I think she's too young to understand what a uh, I was born in 1985. I know what a Rolodex is and a pager. Oh, wow. Okay, okay. I used to know those fun codes you used to send your friends, but now I can't remember any of them. <laughs> <laughs> so, guys, today I want to use Gyrodata really as the case study because y'all are global. You've blown up. You've niched down. You've paid attention to certain products. You've uh, added more products. You've been through the whole spectrum. And like you said, We've had a lot of waves since the early 90s, late 80s. So can one of y'all go into a bit of the history of gyro data and really talk about how you started picking where to put your focus as a company in particular markets? Let, let me, uh, since, I, since I'm the longest, or, since I've been here longer than you, Ezra, maybe yeah, I can go back. Uh, well, I, I can I can delve in the 1980s. So, Jaradata uh, uh, was founded in, uh, in 1980. So, uh, uh, we're just about to celebrate our 40th anniversary in the coming year, which is huge for us. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a, a bunch of entrepreneurs in Houston. Uh, they're currently our board of directors. They've uh, retired and moved on into the board level. 
but they had a vision for a, a product that was missing in the market, and they were they were entrepreneurs, innovators, and uh, that was based in Houston. They developed a, a gyro product, which was groundbreaking at, at the time. It was really was a revolution in uh, wellbore surveying, um, and then very quickly they realized that they needed to expand internationally. Now. Nearly half the founders had worked internationally previously and they understood the international markets. Um, unlike some people that don't travel, they just think that the American market is the same globally, and it's really not true. It's uh, <laughs> international markets are so different, and each international market is different from the other one. So they had a, a lot of vision there. Uh, we uh, opened up an office in Aberdeen, Scotland, um, to basically... Um, just have a balance of of work where if it was quiet in America, we're busy international, etc. And that's a that's a mindset that we've had for the last forty years is to make sure that we're as geographically diverse as we possibly can be. Mm -hmm. So when one market, um, I can't use the word flu because that's probably bad for twenty twenty, but when one market goes down, yeah. um, there's somewhere else in the world that's keeping that market, uh, keeping the company uh, okay revenue-wise. It's, uh, it's maintaining revenues. So that's one of the things from Jara Data that uh, dating back into the 1980s, it was really, um, really important in 1986, 87, when they uh, had the first major recession in oil and gas. Um, and I remember in 1985 vividly, because it was in Aberdeen, nearly 50% of houses for sale were oil and gas people losing their jobs. Etc. It was a really horrible time in, uh, to be in the UK, and I know it was equally in the US as well in the mid-1980s, and that's what we call the first downturn in oil and gas. Um, and then from that, we learned so much that to be diverse, um, to make sure that we cut really quickly, um, to um, reduce the size of our company to match the size of the market really, really quickly. And we've been through multiple uh, recessions since then. You know, in 1999, 2008, 2009, the financial crisis, 2015, that we didn't really exit from. We never really exited that downturn. And then we got a, a double whammy with a double black swan event in uh, 2020. So this is, our, this is not our first rodeo, uh, excuse the Texas pun. Um, but we've, we've learned our lessons from the mistakes that we've made in the past. And uh, as a company now, it's... Uh, we just have a playbook. We've, we have a playbook for this now, which is unfortunate, but we have a playbook of how to deal with it. Definitely. And to, to add to that, uh, well, first thing I want to note is one of the founders says that this was a get rich quick scheme. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we're, you know, we're still here, Ezra. We're still yeah, here. Exactly. So thankfully, we're still here. But he does say that's actually quite funny. Uh, but there's so many examples of that playbook that Alan said and really. It's, it's magical, it's lucky. I can tell you how it's done, but you've really got to, you've got to have an answer for the market. And that's the key. This company was started by a man who knew what the market wanted and it's basic. This technology took away the need for time costly, time consuming operations. And so the minute this went into play, not only that, they didn't have to shut in wells. So he, and this was all in the North Sea as Alan said, which is where it started. So you've got an easy value proposition. It, it just really works. It's fundamentally strong. There's no fluff to it. And that is why we're around 40 years later. Yeah. But the other thing is talking about the U.S. versus the rest of the world. 09 is a good example. I mean, the U.S. went off a cliff and as did the rig count, we were booming uh, all around the world. But guess what? 
the, the rest of the world, the oil business didn't even slow down. The, the contract terms, the way the business works, there's a huge lag. It, they can't react like they can in the U.S., the U.S. immediately. So we were diversified. We really had no slowdown internationally. We got crushed in the U.S. But guess what? We had a lot of good hands, a lot of good people. And we had, I know I had people in EG. I had people in Angola. We had Trinidadians all over the world just because they happened to be highly trained with some of the technology. But it, it does work and the playbook is there and it, it's not rocket science, but it, it's all, it's it's quite grisly, honestly, because there's a human factor. Uh, but there's all kinds of balances that work. Well, in cases, to your point, when people think scaling up and scaling down, that human factor is what gets cut first. And I know it's one of the easiest things to cut overhead wise, but when you're really still committed to the vision of the company and you and that is a, a living document an ever evolving, uh, I guess, outlook uh, forecast for your company, what does your playbook say about remaining true to that vision and cutting where you need to cut, not cutting or consolidating for the sake of panic? Well, uh Maybe in the past we did panic, and uh, maybe in 1999, and we learned. That's where I'm saying we've learned our lessons from mistakes that we've made in the past. Um, but 2015 recession. Um, I mean, after the Vienna summit um, OPEC meeting on I think it was November the 30th, uh, 2014, um, that really changed things, and we were slow to react. Uh, and that's something that we've now become far more. Um, aware of is the market as, as Ezra mentioned is the market what is the actually the macroeconomics in the market itself so what's what, our market telling us what made you slow to react to that because that was because we th we thought we thought it was the same as 2009 we thought it was like the financial crisis where um it was going to be a what we call a v type recession where it would drop really quickly and bounce back really quickly yeah. Um, and and the, the previous management or the some of the management that was previous to Jardy at that time thought it was going to be a, a replic replication of that playbook from 2009. But when you understand yeah. the 2009 macroeconomics and the reason behind it, it was basically um, capital was drying up in the US. There was uh, oil companies and EMP companies couldn't get access to capital. Mm -hmm. And that was the reason that the oil price uh, or the activity in the US crashed where it didn't crash internationally. It wasn't a true supply and demand scenario. But in 2014, November, when Saudi basically, Saudi Arabia basically said, we are not supporting the oil price anymore. Um, and then the US became the, the swing producer effectively with shale. Mm -hmm. That cha immediately changed the OPEC, non-OPEC dynamic, where the US was now the, the swing producer and Saudi Arabia walked away, we're not defending it anymore. Yeah. And that led to probably one of the first true supply and demand issues in oil and gas where it wasn't political or wasn't war related. Um, so for us, um, it was the different, it, it, that was, there wasn't a V recession, that was going to be longer term and it has been very long term. It's been basically yeah. five years and it's still ongoing. And, if you uh, haven't been fired twice since 2014, then you're just really lucky. <laughs> to, you know, well, to add to that, um, Catherine and, and Alan knows this also, uh, but we, Traditionally, Gyrodata for many, many years did not lay off and they were very loyal. It was a family. So there's many periods now they would give do pay cuts. They did whatever they could. But one of the fundamental beliefs of the of the founders is that you yes, you need to 
adjust for the downturn, but you must be poised and ready to capitalize when it returns. That's the thing people forget about. That's why that human factor is, mm -hmm. those are not easy decisions. It, you really, if, if you miss the upturn, then you really messed up. You've screwed up totally. So, and Alan worries about that every day. And I think it's, it's, it's neat for us because we're evolving remote operations. We're evolving our technology. We're doing more with less. So we're really in a great position now. But in the past, it's, it's so much people learning. We're a service company. Yeah. It's not about the technology. It's about us delivering a service. And, it's, it's, and all service companies are in the same boat. It's on us when these downturns come. The operators have traditionally weathered it without laying off. Now that's changed, uh, basically due to what Alan just said. This is yeah. truly a supply and demand issue. Yeah. But keeping, the, you really, ideally, you do keep all of your people or as many of them as you can so you can really capture it on the rebound. That's just the, that is the secret sauce. I completely agree. So you said something very interesting, which I don't think a lot of people actually realize that, you know, life exists outside of West Texas. And when we experienced our black swan events, the rest of the world stayed fairly steady. And there was ample opportunity outside of the, the US, the lower 48, so to speak. So but there are different rules. You need agents. You have to set up, you know, preferred vendors with IOCs and NOCs. It's quite a process. So the difference, though, that I'm seeing, thanks to y'all's lovely Stephen Forrester, is that although you are a niche company, you have a global presence, and that's because of digital media. So when you're picking which country to really focus on and go after and get your foot in the door, what are y'all doing internally with you know around the discussion around the boardroom, so to speak, on where to go and where to focus when everything at home is crumbling and you need to keep your people and your products active? Well, we uh, for us, it's uh, this is not a decision we make every year. We've been uh, present in a lot of these countries for two decades or longer. Exactly. Um, we really only branched international in 1993, and I was the I was one of the pioneer managers that went international uh, then, um, and that was th really 13 years after inception is when we started going out with the North Sea and out with uh, the US. Uh, yes, some parts of Latin America we were present in, but I'm talking about to get to 48 countries, 52 operating bases globally. It was really from 93 onwards that we uh, we really started. Uh, UE was the first place we uh, came to in the Middle East. Then it was Qatar, then it was Oman, then it was Saudi, then it was Egypt, then it was Kuwait, okay. um, then it was India, then it was Pakistan. And it, uh, there was a plan tw back really 20 odd years ago, there was a plan of um, how do we move into all these new countries and have market penetration of our technology and how do we grow? And you're perfectly correct. There's agent issues. There's national oil company issues. There's local content issues. And there's one thing I'm really proud of is when I, in 2014, when I went to, sorry, 2004, when I went to Malaysia, uh, Malaysia was probably about 30, 40% foreigners in Malaysia. We didn't have a technical team in Malaysia. We didn't have a finance team in Malaysia. We didn't have management team in Malaysia. Uh, they were middle management or below or field engineers. And by the time I left in 2016, Malaysia, 100% Malaysians were running 100% of Malaysia. So, and that's the same that we've got now in Trinidad and Latin America, and it's huge. So to be successful internationally, you've got to promote your your indigenous people to, rule, to, to basically run the country. And 
Now, some of it is nationalistic pride, like Petronas, for example, in Malaysia. They want Malaysians to uh, go and meet them in the office, not a Scotsman, not a gentleman from Louisiana. They, they'll, they'll welcome us openly, but not as openly as a fellow Malaysian that has the same culture and the same, maybe the same schools or friends or football teams, etc. So the key to uh, internationalization is not to export international or uh, export domestic. It's actually to create international teams self-sufficient. So for us, that's that's how we've managed to have this blend between um, localization, expatriate, and domestic. So now internationally, we have very few expatriates within Gyrodata. Very, very few. Oh, that's actually very cool. Yeah. Catherine, to add something to that. Yeah, go for it. Once again, unique to our company is a lot of the entries to these 48 countries is on the heels of the big guys. So Schlumberger gets a project in Angola. We go along for the ride. We put our little kit in their yard. We don't have to build roof line. We don't have to get a new agent in most cases. So really the begin the foundation of going, as Alan said, out into the world was really on the heels of the majors. Okay. Schlumberger, Baker, Halliburton, and Weatherford to some extent. So Again, privileged role to be in. It's great because now your capex to go to another country is just flying the kit down there, and we don't have a huge need for roofline, at least at the at the start. So that that's huge part, and uh, they have a lot more lawyers, a lot more understanding of these areas, a lot more security understanding. You're going to Nigeria, you're going wherever. Uh, so we we really were able to just go on the coattails, and they didn't have what we have, so they needed us there. Um, lots of stories about that, but really that, that brought us into dozens of countries. Yep. So right now we have a bunch of, like, we've got our majors and our super majors out there and they're everywhere, but we also have a lot of mid-sized service companies in various aspects of the oil field. What's y'all's advice for getting your foot in the door to an international audience, as opposed to just focusing, say on the Rockies or out on the Marcellus or something along those lines? There are there are so many companies from United Kingdom. There. <laughs> <laughs> there there are so many there are so many companies uh, in the U.S. and the U.K. Which is the two main was originally in the 1980s the two main oil export hubs for talent and companies. Uh, that's where nearly all of the oil field service companies of today come from. It was either Europe or uh, the U.S. I know that's changed somewhat since then, um, but. I've seen so many companies when I lived in the Middle East trying to come to the Middle East thinking they're in England or they're in Scotland. And they don't understand the cult they don't understand the culture of the people. Mm -hmm. So they come in with a, a British way of doing business which doesn't work in certain markets. And then you have the West Texan say a directional drilling company trying to create a drilling company in the UK but having a West Texas attitude to safety, service quality, or even just sales, where they're, they're, they're used to hunting, fishing, et cetera, and whatever, which is, is it's important. I love that as well. Um, yeah. very, much, very much so. Very much so. <laughs> but, but, they, uh, but the reality is, is if you, if you don't go and open your mind up and, and, and then and envelope this culture that you're going to and understand the culture, you will fail, yeah? Yeah. Absolutely. And it's, it's simple little things. It's really it's simple little things. Out of, uh, out of well, knowledge. Patience. Patience is yeah. so key. 
Patience is is a must. Uh, and I, I, Alan's spot on what he's saying because no one has the stomach and no shareholders or board members are going to say, okay, go to Saudi. By the way, we're not going to make revenue for a year, maybe two. Yeah. And we're going to give the first jobs for free. And the payment terms are nowhere near the U.S. Yeah. And there's nothing you can do to make it go faster. Nothing. Yeah. All you can do is make it go slower by behaving like, a jackass, uh, but you can do nothing to make it faster and get ready for paperwork. It's not transactional, it's tenders. So, um, but it's not impossible, but you really need to have the company focused and behind you and committed and patient. So yeah. is that more old school oil field or is that literally just culture by culture, country by country? Because I've kind of seen that a little bit as well, but it seems to be you know, people like their printouts. They like their tangible contracts. They don't really want all the PDFs and digital copies. It's how they're used to doing business, so to speak. Uh, I, think I, I think it's a different way of doing business because uh, Ezra mentioned that you've got transactional business in the U.S. versus contractual business internationally. And uh, you, you have to think strategically for maybe two to three years before you even win work. Yeah. Um, and, and we've done this when we uh, when we first started in uh, at the UE. We had a we had a two year plan before we even generated any revenue. Oh, I would like yep. to see that playbook. <laughs> yeah, and, and that dates back. And, and now going into new markets, uh, it could be it could be two years before you generate any revenue. Now, most public traded companies won't accept that because they won't accept um, losing money for one or two years strategically to recoup in three or four or five years. But the one difference, once you're once you're in there, like say for example, the UE with Adnoc or in Saudi Arabia with uh, Saudi Aramco, once you're in there, you're in there for life. Mm -hmm. Exactly um, right. Or Petrobras in Brazil yeah. or Pemex in Mexico, uh, yeah. Yeah, so the say for Adnoc example, the beauty of Adnoc in the UE um, is whether the oil price goes up or the oil price go down, goes down, the rig count doesn't change. So the rig yeah. count in the UE exactly. just now is actually going up. It is. Yeah. Interesting. And we understand and when you understand the dynamics of it, it's the it's the country's rigs, it's the country's supply vessels. Mm -hmm. Um the supply chain is generating GDP for the country. If they, if they suddenly stop drilling and they suddenly stop investing in oil, it's now got a social impact on their country. So for, for them, it, it's, not, it's not equity based companies like it is in the US. It's not strategic for them. It's short term, um, have an asset, flip an asset, make some money for everybody and move on, yeah, or pay their debts uh, and debts. So it's, co it's completely different dynamics between an NOC or an IOC. They're, they're looking at 20 to 30 to 50 year long term. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the one thing that's concerning above all the challenges which we outlined, which we, we know we can do this and you can as a company, is the, this kind of supply chain role inside organizations now that has gotten into the NOCs and the IOCs as they started with. But the problem I have is that company A who wants to go into Saudi could literally just be a pawn to bring down Slumberjay's pricing or Halliburton's pricing and and 
it's not right. Um, there should be more transparency. If you are going to invite a, co a company in, you should have at least an idea that you will use them. Um, but there is a lot of gamesmanship in the supply chain world that I don't agree with. Uh, it, it stalls innovation because of all you're trying to do is lower the price of Halliburton. What are you doing for the industry? Mm -hmm. Where's the innovation? Where's the competition? So, and it's not a great market, obviously. So they're, they're trying, they're all trying to survive in their own ways. Uh, yeah big guys but that's a dynamic that is concerning uh we're victims of it we have yeah. pick a country we have these companies pop up they went to china bought something and all of a sudden guess what it's just as good as what Jardate offers but amazingly they don't calibrate anything oh well you know <laughs> a little part of that <laughs> so um no i i just yeah. wanted to touch on that because that's a that is a concern i think you need to be wary if you are just invited with open arms come come to my country and work for me um don't get played yeah and and, and Carson, that would actually be a good podcast title the role of procurement and the, what the impact it has on the oil field that would actually be a very good uh, uh yeah. topic to be honest I with you myself, you volunteered but, yourself for another episode Thank well you. myself and ezra can talk for hours on that <laughs> one cheaper <laughs> isn't better and, it, and it's proven right. and uh it you know it's it's True vendor management right. is keeping your vendor alive, nurturing the vendors, growing them, supporting them, not beating them down every single chance you can. I mean, every single. No, I'll get off the soapbox on that one. Sometimes it's a constant struggle until you even land the contract. So, like you said, don't get yourself played. So, jumping back, we are in December 2020. And Alan, as you said, the first real downturn was in the 80s. And I've heard several people say, well, we can't learn anything from that downturn because this is this is all black swan. We didn't see this coming. But to contradict that, we've been in this since 2014. So as we're watching sort of the world cave in over the last year, between you and Ezra, what are what are the questions you wish you had asked up front when we saw all of this happening and didn't know enough yet to ask those questions that you would ask now, having been through this last eight months? <laughs> Ezra? I, can you rephrase that question? I, so the questions, what questions, what questions, what questions in the beginning of this downturn, what questions are beginning of these black swan events? What questions do you wish you had asked that you may not have had enough data to ask yet that you would ask now? Well, it'd probably be more around the pandemic, right? You know, how will countries manage it? And, you know, meaning manage the fear, the concern, when will we, allow kind of reality-based decision-making around COVID-19. And so that would impact when the demand would return. I think we're suffering miserably, you know, from just inconsistent dealings with it. Uh, yeah. So I'd say the question would be around the pandemic. A downturn is a downturn. We've talked about the playbook and everything. Uh, quite frankly, we're doing great. You know, we're, we're not profitable, highly profitable right now. But we aren't losing money and we're in markets, places like Norway and the U North Sea, where the company started in the 80s. Yeah. We're, we're debuting new technology. It's phenomenal and it's exploding. We can't even keep up right now today. That's awesome. That's so, like the best news you could hear in 2020. It is. And, and honestly, I, I have kind of 
almost tinges of guilt some days because it is so exciting to be a part of the company at this time. But now the questions, I don't know. I don't know of any other questions. I would say it would be more around the pandemic for me because there's been a lot of things like inefficiencies. You wouldn't believe the way we will fly someone to a job, but then they got to sit in quarantine for two weeks. Then they'll do a two day job. Then they got to go two weeks in quarantine. And that's, that's not even a good example. There's it's ridiculous amounts of, challenges around uh the pandemic yeah and catherine from my side i don't think there's any questions that uh i wish i could have asked back in march or april um again the fundamentals of this were as a supply and demand um regardless of the cause whether it was a financial crisis a glutton supply in 2015 or effectively a glutton supply in 2020 and that's what really what it's about Okay. That when the the global the global economy switched off, there was no longer a requirement for all the oil being produced in the world. So okay. it dropped it dropped fifteen, twenty, thirty percent um, on demand, and it was oversupplied. Yeah. So in, initially, it was a game between Russia and Saudi Arabia, where there was a price war ongoing, and that very quickly uh, um, became obviously immaterial because the uh, demand completely crashed globally. Mm-hmm. To a point, the point that everybody was uh, building uh, up supplies, strategic reserves. China was buying oil uh, very, very cheaply, filling up their strategic reserves. The U.S. was doing the same. We ended up with negative oil price at one point uh, earlier this year with contracts in West Texas. So there was a there was a lot of there was a lot of chaos. But ultimately, it comes down to the same economic driver of supply and demand. So our playbook, um, which is unfortunate, a lot of people unfortunately lost their jobs in our company as well as others. But our playbook was exactly the same, regardless of the uh, actual root cause, which was COVID. Uh, It was really a supply and demand uh, issue, which then curtailed activity through the reduction in drilling, which impacted everybody immediately. And it was lights off within four weeks. Um, March to April was a 50% downturn for us in revenue in one month. That's that crazy. did not that, that that did not happen in 2015. It took six months, a year, a year and a half before revenues. It was like a slow, very rapid in the U.S., but then a slow decline internationally as the large capital projects came to a stand a still um, a standpoint. Uh, but for us, um, it was really one month. It was like boom. 150 jobs a month in North America down to 20 jobs a month in North America instantly overnight. And then the month after that, it was now our inability to send people to job locations. So we couldn't send people internationally because of restrictions. I was actually stuck in the UK for four months because of the travel restrictions to the US. Even visa workholders were not allowed to uh, to return to the US. Even to today, people can't travel freely around the world because of the travel restrictions. And that had a big impact on uh, not only our company, but lots of companies in the world. Yeah. And we, we did see countries that shut down drilling altogether. Uh, places like Argentina is just starting back up. So we were impacted like that. I mean, I think that's where the COVID factor still today, that's going to be the clearance for allowing supply and demand to do their natural um, correction. And so we're still clouded by that. And that's really the unknown because as Alan said, it'll, it'll fall right back to a typical downturn and they'll correct themselves and just be ready because it will be busy again. It was amazing how many commentators jumped on the, and offered up their opinions about those natural corrections. It's still amazing today how people are just throwing out forecast without any sort of clout behind it, so to speak. But I am curious what y'all's playbook is uh, predicting for 
the outcome or the future of the oil field in regards to the current presidential uh, <laughs> debates that are happening of which way are we going to go? <laughs> are y'all preparing for that in any way? Uh, Up. <laughs> well, uh, obviously with the, uh, um, the new president elect. not geopolitical. Well, the, the president-elect, if he does become president, um, obviously, uh, typically, if he, if he follows through with... Um, banning, drilling, and fracking? Well, uh, maybe maybe not banning drilling, but on federal land. So yeah. if he uh, if he bans uh, drilling on federal land, then that's an issue. And then uh, you've, you already start to see in some states where they're trying to restrict fracking. Mm -hmm. um, Colorado's already trying to, trying to restrict drilling within 1,000 feet of residential properties, et cetera. So there's... That Two thousand. Yeah. Just you know. <laughs> yeah. So f federal federal government, if they have restrictions on the uh, industry, that that'll actually mean that the U.S. is no longer the swing producer, which will lead to higher oil prices. Exactly. Which yep. so in, if if you're a if you're a balanced company with an international and domestic footprint, it will actually be better for you um, because the oil price will go up because of the restrictions on the U.S. industry. And what's exactly. interesting about that is presidential, uh, I guess, presidential terms are typically measured on um, or judged by how well oil is done because it drives the economy. Where's the cost? Where did all that revenue come from? Well, it's, it's not really, it maybe drives the economy in uh, Texas and Pennsylvania and uh, Wyoming, etc. But overall, uh, oil and gas has got a very minor contribution to the overall U.S. economy. And uh, because the U.S. is heavily dependent on oil for transportation, for every for every ten dollars oil goes up, it has a major impact on the GDP growth. Ooh. So, uh, for America as a holistic country, as a country, it's actually better for oil price to be very, very low because it helps the economy through uh, re reduction in transportation. So exactly, that's what I agree with. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it's not a political. It's not an American political topic. It's a, it's the most important commodity in the world and we just talked about global business mm -hmm. as alan said it's a global commodity so yeah whatever happens any regulations or restrictions only just inhibit drilling in the u.s and will raise the price of oil you you've got to go where it is I've, I've advised a lot of friends who are some unemployed right now in north america i said look it's never just been a north america business it's it's way bigger than any election it really is irrelevant and to get wrapped up in trump or biden winning it, it is completely irrelevant and by the way some of these regulations actually for our business are better you have more wells per pad further extended reach drilling that's better for directional drilling rotary steerables I mean, there's always opportunity in anything. And hopefully we do the right thing as an industry and continue to do things that don't bring regulation on. Um, and we just find ways to innovate, find ways to, to harvest the hydrocarbons and do it transparently, efficiently. You know, there's lots of ways we can improve. Uh, we should always strive to improve. So um, it's funny you say that there are lots of ways to improve, because one of the things that I've been pushing for, not to just take a hard left off of politics there, but one of the things I've always been pushing for is more collaboration between companies. And typically we in the lower 48, we don't see that because it is a privatized industry. You know, like you said, we're not an NOC type environment. Um, but my insider trading tells me that y'all have collaboration with Halliburton 
on a few projects. And I'm curious what drove y'all to that opportunity, because that's a very interesting way to scale business when the market is shifting exponentially around you. Yeah, it's well, I, I mentioned ex expansion globally for us was done with the aid of, of the major service companies. We've, we've always been, talk about a niche. We are a niche that not even they have in their portfolio. All of them have tried. They all have not even come close to succeeding and doing what we do. It's our focus, what we do best. So uh, conveniently enough, we're happy. We're neutral. We work with all of them. I personally deal with all of them every day and they're all great, great individuals there. But yeah, we, we facilitate them having this technology. And um, the latest one was Halliburton. Yeah, we launched uh, in October, the Gyrostar. Yes. Uh, they just happened to see the value in it before anyone else. They had a, a, a two-year protocol we worked with them on to, to validate it and then commercialize it. And yeah, um, wish them all the best. And uh, they're already seeing success. It's ridiculous. The top three clients we brought it to now use it exclusively. That is so cool. But, you know, back to scaling, that's an opportunity, a collaboration where, you know, in the past might have been hesitant for one reason or another. And then you merge forces and all of a sudden there is a new line of revenue, a new relationship. And to your point, you are neutral. You go everywhere. But that is an opportunity that I would say we don't see enough of in the oil field. That's a technology that that really is a function of technology. So a lot of oil field is either commoditized goods, mm -hmm. something that doesn't have anything to offer. Maybe there's a unique process or approach or something that a company has, and maybe that could aid for collaboration. But for the most part, we have unique technology and that allows us to do that. I mean, Alan could talk yeah. for a while. He, his whole focus on the organization has been around organizing an engineering group that can do a lot more collaboration than what you've seen. So for us, That's it's it. big. And, and for, for us, it's with... I, I love this. <laughs> well, for, for us, uh, we, we're actually going through a three-year transformation process. It's a, a three-year transformation plan. It's sort of what we call our 2023 plan. Um, and what we're doing is we're trying to shift from Gyrodata building and owning an asset and Gyrodata deploying an asset with people and services. So it's 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 a little bit like the lock, stock and barrel. We are providing everything, the, um, the technology, the service, the follow-up, the warranty, everything. Now, that was probably 60, 70% of our business today is that type of business that we run our own technology and we deploy our own technology with no channel partners and no integrations. So what, what we're morphing into is um, us still doing that, but to a lesser extent. And the blend will change where the likes of Halliburton, Schlumberger, Weatherford, Baker Hughes, et cetera, will have access to our, I mean, groundbreaking technology that we have, but they, in the future, they'll be running it with our technical support and our maintenance. So now we're not actually providing the service anymore. We're riding on the coattails of the very large OFS companies. So now we've got that scalability where we're not competing with them anymore. We divested our directional uh, drilling product lines earlier this year. We divested our rotary stable product line earlier this year. Um, that was to focus on our core business, which was gyro, gyro data. So you um, down your products so that you could focus. I love cap 
well, it was capital light products, differentiated, um, non-commoditized. Unfortunately, the directional drilling business is heavily commoditized. Mm -hmm. um, and in North America, especially, it's it's really tough to uh, to make money in this market. So for us, it was capital light product lines, um, technical differentiation. I'm not just talking about 1% or 2%. I'm talking about the only company in the world that can do this, which is us. Um, so that's our, 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 morph, our morphing strategy is to shift the blend from us providing the service to having channel partners, integration partners, commercial partners, where we can now expand into new markets we've never been in, uh, I mean, exponentially, basically. Yep. Um, if you look at the directional market globally with Shlomoji, Halliburton, and Baker, they're on hundreds and hundreds of wells every day drilling. Yeah. And we are maybe, I don't know what it would be, Ezra, just now we're maybe on like 1% or 2% of these wells are using our technology where they have to. Going forward with true integrations, we may be in every single BHA that they drill a well with. That's yeah. cool. And, and, and we are adding tremendous value to the operators and adding tre tremendous value uh, drivers for, uh, for the clients as well. Yeah, totally, Alan. The, the operators are seeing the value right away. They're seeing it this year. We've, we've started removing people from the rig and we still pay those people because we pay them to work in a remote center, but reducing your carbon footprint cutting out chopper flights, cutting out meals, cutting out pe literally people in harm's way on the rig, the operators have gained value immediately. And so that's that's great, it's awesome. We still have to work twice as hard to figure out how we're gonna capitalize and, and capture our share of it. And that's an ongoing process. But- I'm very curious about that process. The collaboration is so essential for us, as Alan said, to, to take the cap off because being embedded in the, the operation, the planning of a well in the operator's office, that's never been what we do. We are always, and sometimes it's, well, most of the time we're necessary, we're required. They just can't do it without us and they can't start the well without us. It's the initial, the anti-collision, the surface hole, they can't drill the top without, without us. So, but then we're gone. We finish that section, we go home. Um, so the rest of the wells drilled and we're not even part of that planning. Yeah. There are cases where we are. So I'm just saying for the most part though, we're just not there. And as Alan said, that leaves us out of you know, hundreds and thousands of wells. Yeah. And, and today we're viewed as a subcontractor, which is not, uh, we're seen as a cost spend by the, by the procurement department. So yeah. part of our strategy is no longer to be a subcontractor where we're a partner a channel partner or a technology partner where we're not viewed as a paper supplier for a photocopier machine where the the procurement department don't typically know the technology they're asked to quote for a gyro yeah and there's very few people in the world that can really tell the difference between one gyro and another there's there's a lot of the experts in the uh, globally are within the major nocs and iocs a lot of the smaller companies e and b companies do not have the expertise internally so when procurement says to them, this gyro looks like gyro, it, it smells like it, it looks like it, it must be the same and it's half the price. Um, when they go to run it, it they obviously then realize it's not the same gyro. Same. So for, for us, it's really important that we're no longer viewed as a subcontractor, but more as a partner, a technology partner and commercial partner. And then they then see the value proposition that we bring in their BHA uh, with the client. I really like that. And that must have been a very interesting sort of 
blueprinting the different ways that you can be or move into that partnership um, as opposed to previous engagements, because that's one thing I think everyone needs to look at is say, where are my avenues? What am I not utilizing or what am I underutilizing? And that is key and parcel to making smart decisions for scaling your business and niching your products. Now, that all comes back to what we said probably 20 minutes ago is knowing your market. Exactly. And actually understanding how the market's changing in 2020. The market has changed more in the last six months than it has in my 30 years in the oil and gas. And I know, I know it is. It's going to, it's going to drilling automation. It's going to machine learning. It's going to uncrewed operations. It's going to simplification of process, reduction in capital. Um, So you can see the way the business is changing. So. Um, I've used this uh, analogy many times in Jaredy. We do not want to be BlackBerry. We do not want to be Nokia. We do not want to be Kodak. We do not want to be uh, Radio Shack. Why did those great companies fail? And why are they no longer in, uh, like, say, for example, Nokia? Nokia, everybody 15, 20 years ago, maybe after pagers, but after (laughs) pagers before iPhones, um, everybody had a Nokia. Yeah. It was awesome. Everybody. Snake on it. <laughs> Everybody. And you add all predictive text, whatever. But Nokia um, were probably 80, 90% of the global market share. Why did they fail and why did they end up getting sold to Microsoft? That's, that's a really good thesis if you look at it. They failed to understand their market. They failed to understand that the user wanted a simple to use and operate device that was a PDA that could also be a semi-computer. They completely failed to listen to the market. So what we're what we're doing in charity is listening to the market, listening to the voice of the client. Uh, what do you want from us? How can we more? How can we change? What's your pain points with charity? How can we relieve your pain from using us? And by listening to the clients, that's where we're now. We've got this strategy moving forward to have better alignment, better commercial alignment, better technical alignment, better relationships at all vertical levels of the organisation. And it's, it's all part of a three-year strategy for us to morph into what we call our 2023 uh, plan. I love that. Well, this has been such an interesting conversation. I love hearing your perspective, where you've been, where you're expecting to go, where you are now. Like you said, this has been incredibly volatile and there's no good answer, but there is strategy. And that is something that everyone yeah. needs to step back and actually do, not on panic, but on logic. And I think the best advice you just gave was know your market. But before I let you guys go, what is a book, podcast, or other resource that has brought y'all value in your career that you would recommend to others? Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) This is why I send an interview agenda. (laughs) I've been, uh, I don't know, I've been reading and rereading Jim Quick's book, Limitless, lately. Why? Actually, a, a, a friend and mentor and former colleague gave it to me and thought I'd like it. So, you know, it's, it's good. I, I get I honestly get inundated with too many podcasts. I get overloaded with it and too many books, for that matter, kind of kind of take away the creativity. So I actually. That's a good point. The work is about, yeah. you know, a day of work is about all I need. I try to escape after that. So uh, lately I've really diluted all of that from from my life so i'm not i'm not a hard i'm not hardcore these days you've gotten rid of the extra noise so that you can focus on what you need to focus on that's actually it, not bad it is yeah it, and i think a lot of people 
tend to go the other direction and between social media and podcast, there's always something going in their ears and I just have kind of taken a break from it. Alex. I, I, I listen to uh, podcasts that have an interesting topic. Um, unfortunately, with my role in my personal life, I don't have a lot of time to uh, listen to podcasts uh, apart from my 20-minute commute in Houston to the office. Uh, but nowadays, since I've been working from home most of this year, I don't have that commute anymore. Um, you'd think that you, when you save the time on commute, you do something more productive, but you end up working. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. You, yeah. you actually just end up working 40 minutes longer per day, which is fine. But for me, uh, it's, it's more books for me. Um, I like listening to podcasts uh, on topics, but I also like to uh, to read books. Uh, for me, the internationally for China, the best book uh, that gave me an insight into working in China was Mr. China. Um, and it's, it's basically uh, um, the Americans wanted the $100 uh, DVD player. And it's about uh, an American gentleman that uh, went to China, started a factory, was very successful, and uh, he, he misunderstood the Middle Kingdom mentality of China, and uh, he paid the price. And uh, it's a really good book if you're uh, dealing with uh, China. Uh, the other one for me, which is really uh, instrumental, is Good to Great. Um, and it's really uh, something I, uh, I live with every day is how, do, how does a good company become great? And what's the diff differentiators between uh, just a me too and a, a great company? And typically what you find is the, the leader is non-egotistical. He's an introverted, quiet person. But more importantly, it's people related. Yeah, The people and the teams are what matter. And it's how do you get the best out of the people and the teams? Um, is what makes a great company. And then also the strategizing, the all that comes from people, yeah? Yeah. So for, for me, great companies become, uh, good companies become great because of development of the talent of the people. Um, for me, that's something I live by. Um, Jared to who we are after 40 years because we have amazing people. You yeah. might. Um, 40 years is uh, not a small feat. No. Well, Alan and Ezra, this is, again, this has been a killer conversation. I personally have learned so much from it. So I greatly appreciate y'all yeah. taking the time from your various undisclosed locations. <laughs> so w w when are we when doing the procurement topic? Oh, <laughs> I don't just even. You do not worry. <laughs> Maybe after we retire, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous, but thank you all so much. And I look forward to our uh, next conversation since Alan, you just volunteered yourself again. <laughs> <laughs>